You have stumbled upon 2.1, a Netrunner Reboot Project podcast. Episode 2, A Very Literal Mind. Hey, this is Remy. Uh, You may or may not recognize the title of this episode as part of a quote on the flavor text for Ice Wall. Uh, The full quote is from Liz Campbell, VP of Project Security. I asked for ice as impenetrable as a wall. I can't decide if someone down in R&D has a warped sense of humor or just a very literal mind. And that fits in with a small motif. We're going to have a little theme about ice, especially in the first part of the episode. Our segments are going to be focusing on ice and how to pay for them. And uh, well, I'll extend the metaphor a little bit to an icebreaker tournament. And then in the second half of the show, as we focus on the 2.1 specific information, we'll get into half of the corp cards from the core set and how they have been changed. Our first segment is Anonymous Tip, and our focus is going to be, again, on ice in this episode. And this episode, particularly from the runner's perspective, next episode we'll look at it more from the court perspective. As a new runner, I think a common misunderstanding is that all ice stops your run. So when you see an ice show up in front of a server, and especially if it's face down and you don't know what it is, the natural inclination is for the runner to feel like, well, I can't get in there. And so you just start digging for cards or clicking for money. And at that point is when you start to fall behind. So an important thing to remember as the runner is simply what I already said, not all ice stops runs. Uh, So run that ice. Find out what it is. In fact, if it stops your run, not only is that good information, but you've also cost the corp some money. And that's kind of what you have to do. I'll get into that in quite a bit more detail in a couple of weeks. But for right now, the simple tip is keep running. Run aggressively. Now, admittedly, you have to watch out for some things that can hurt you. There are sentries and there are a trap, one trap ice, that can cause you some damage. But let's take a look at that ice. Of the 19 different kinds of ice in the core set, six of them can hurt you and two of them can blow up your programs. But of the six that can hurt you, three of them are bioroids. So you can click away the part that hurts you and then just bounce off of it. So one suggestion would be, if you're playing against Haas Bioroid in particular, run early in the turn. That way you will have a click to spare 
in case you run into something that's going to hurt you. But even if it does hurt you, a brain damage is a lot. I mean, it's painful. But it's also not the end of the world. But also note that these ice that hurt you are expensive. Rototurret, well, Victor is only three, but Rototurret is four. Ichi is five. Heimdall and Wall of Thorns are both six. And Archer, though it only costs four, also costs an agenda. So think about that on the first turn of the game. The corp puts down a couple pieces of ice. Can they afford to res the ice they have? And even if they can, now you've drained them of credits. And of course, if it's Archer, whether they can afford it or not, they don't have an agenda to spend on it. So especially in the early game, remembering that not all ice stops runs and the stuff that hurts you is expensive is an important thing that can help you to run more aggressively. And related to the idea that not all ice has an end-of-the-run subroutine is that not all subroutines have to be broken. You know, sometimes if you don't have enough money and you just break the end-the-run part of it and let the other ones fire, you can still get through. And maybe it's going to cost you something. Maybe it's going to benefit the corp. But if you're able to get in and get an agenda, isn't that worth it? It can be worth it. Our sure gamble for this episode is Magnum Opus. Now, admittedly, this doesn't have to do with ice, although it helps you to pay for your icebreaker. So in a roundabout way, it does have something to do with ice. Magnum Opus is the big, expensive shaper program. Costs five, takes up two memory units, but it is just click for two credits. Now, last week, episode one, I talked about economy cards. And here I am again talking about an economy card. Why is that? Because economy is important. Yes, the tricks, the tools, the events, they can be fun. But if you don't have the money to pay for them, they're just dead weight in your hand. So Magnum Opus is a great card that helps you to pay for your stuff. And as the corset shaper, there is no reason not to include it in your deck. In fact, it, it's maybe something that you want to have three copies of to make sure you get it earlier in the game because it will pay for your whole game. Now, it's going to make you a little more hesitant to run into a sentry, so you might want to get a killer out with it rather than face check a sentry and then lose your magnum opus. But such a powerful program. I'd like to quote from a review of the card on Netrunner DB because it just, I think he, uh, the, the user here just explains it a lot more than, than I'm capable of doing. The user's name is Tiranek, T I R R A N E K, and this is from NetrunnerDB.com. Magnum Opus shines through in the core set like a gigantic glowing middle finger to corpse who not only think they can be ahead on money, but also that they can rely on the sheer presence of ice to protect them. As most games start out, you'll put down a few assets. 
maybe play a cheeky hedge fund and advance some agendas, all behind some basic but affordable ice to tax the runner and keep them in check as you contend for an advantage. Then along comes magnum opus and says, those are nice ways of making money and all, but here's the thing, I am money. And it's not lying. It is money. Pure, infinite money. Therefore, it will remove most of the lasting tax from your early game ice. It will, with worrying speed, put even the most exorbitant toys within reach. It will allow the runner, even at low length, to comfortably contend with most traces. And it will, barring any mistakes, never run out, thus putting the corp on a slow but steady countdown to being royally screwed. Its one explicit weakness is that at 2MU it will need setup to bring the runner's full rig into play. That will, with luck, take some time. And then the review goes on to talk more about playing around it for the corp. But infinite money. It's pretty good economy. It's a sure gamble. In the Data Sucker segment this time around, I'll be comparing the icebreakers in each faction. So, hopefully I can do this in a way that will not be sort of mind-numbing. Let's start with Anarch. They have three basic icebreakers, Corroder, the Fractor, Yog.0, the Decoder, and Mimic, the Killer. For Corroder, it costs two to install, has a strength of two, costs one to break a subroutine, and one to increase strength. Those are great numbers, as we're going to see. For Yog.0, it costs six to install, has a strength of three, but costs zero to break. But on the other hand, can't be increased in strength. The same is true of Mimic, the killer. It can't be increased in strength. It's cheaper to install uh, at a cost of only three, has the same strength. You do have to pay to break stuff. So Yog.0 and Mimic are super good on low to like medium strength ice, but they need help with from the other Anarch tools to be able to reach the more expensive stuff. Meanwhile, Corroder is not a fixed strength breaker. Let's look at the criminal faction. Aurora is the fractor. Compared to Corroder, it costs three to install instead of two. Its strength is lower at one. The break is the same, but you have to spend two to break two which means it's actually a little more expensive for some. And it actually has a better ratio for increasing strength, but again, you have to pay two to break to uh, increase your strength by three. So really, in every way, for most ice, it's a little bit worse. For example, it costs Corroder just one to break Ice Wall, but it costs Aurora two. It costs Corroder two to break Wall of Static, but it costs Aurora four. However, when you get into the expensive stuff, Hadrian's Wall, Aurora takes six, but it takes seven for Corroder. So it's a little better there on the really expensive stuff. But you're much more likely to run in to cheaper stuff. As for the Criminal Decoder, they don't have one. 
In the corset, there is no criminal decoder. Okay then, moving on. They have two killers, Ninja and Femme Fatale. Ninja, install for four. Its strength is zero. That's not great. But it's only one to break a subroutine, and then to increase strength is a great ratio. You get five strength for only two credits, but you have to pay two credits every time. Meanwhile, Femme Fatale is an incredible nine to install. Its strength is decent at two, and it's only one to break, but it costs two to increase strength. So, this is difficult. Let's compare it to Mimic. For Mimic, you can break Neural Katana for just one, but it costs Ninja and Femme Fatale three. However, Mimic can't break Data Raven or Archer at all without help. Meanwhile, Ninja can break Data Raven for three and Archer for eight. But Femme Fatale needs five to break Data Raven and 12 for Archer. Of the two, for basic situations, Ninja is clearly the better. We'll come back to Femme in just a bit. Let's go take a look at the Shaper instead first. Shaper does actually get three breakers. Battering Ram, the Fracture, which costs three to install, has a, as that's one more than Corroder, has a strength of three, that's one more than Corroder, has an equal break for the as Aurora, where it's spend two to break two, which again tends to be a little more expensive, and is only one to increase strength, which is the same as Corroder, plus it has the advantage of keeping its strength throughout the run. So in a lot of ways, Battering Ram is a little better than Corroder. It does have a big downside of needing two memory units, though. Let's compare it in breaking some ice. To break Ice Wall, Corroder needs one, Battering Ram needs two. But both of them can break Wall of Static for two, because of Battering Ram's higher strength. And Battering Ram can break Hadrian's Wall for six, just like Aurora can, whereas Corroder needs seven. So Battering Ram is, I would say it's a little worse than Corroder, because it's expensive, although not as expensive as in pre-reboot times. But that two memory units is tough. Because a shaper, you, you maybe want magnum opus. You might have heard someone talking about that. And so now you need to find the memory for that too, which you can do, but it's a little more of a challenge. Gordian Blade is the decoder for shaper. Its install strength, install cost is four. That's lower than Yogg's six. Its strength is two. That's lower than Yogg's three. And like a good breaker, it costs one to break and one to increase strength. Once again, with Shaper, it keeps the strength throughout the run. So Enigma, Yogg can break for free. It costs Gordian Blade 2. Victor 1.0, Yogg can break for free. It costs Gordian Blade 4. But Yogg can't break Tollbooth, not without help. You have to pay the three-credit uh, three tax, but Gordian Blade, after the three-credit tax, can break Tollbooth for only four. So that's pretty good. And if you get a couple lined up, that's real good. So in some ways, they are comparable, but they really are have, they have different strengths. Gordian Blade is more flexible. 
Yog is great against low strength uh, ice. Pipeline is Shaper's killer. It costs three to install, same as Mimic. Its strength is one, whereas Mimic's is three, and uh, Ninja's is zero. As with the others, it costs just one to break a subroutine, but it costs two to increase the strength by two for the remainder of the run, which is not great. Like with Ninja and Femme Fatale, it can break Neural Katana for three, whereas Mimic only costs one. But it can contend with Data Raven. It breaks it for three, just like Ninja. Archer, though, ouch, because the strength there's so many subroutines. It's 14 for a uh, pipeline to break Archer, whereas Ninja only costs 8. Fem costs 12. So after taking all of this into, into account, uh, it's long it's been recognized, in my mind, this was the, where I started from, Anarchs have the better fractors. Criminals have the better killers. Shapers have the better decoder. That's basically true. But it's not as dramatically true as I might have thought, or you might think. However, in a world where one credit can be the difference between winning and losing the game, where one credit of cost is enough to make a, go, make a card go from being excellent to being middling, one credit can be a big difference. I just want to talk for one second about Femme. Of course, Femme's real advantage is the ability to target a card that you can bypass for just one credit per subroutine. So that means even though it costs five to break Data Raven with Femme, if you target Data Raven with Femme, it only costs one and you don't get the automatic tag. Meanwhile, even though it costs 12 to break Archer cold with Femme, if you target that one, it only costs 4, which compares very favorably to Ninja's 8 and Pipeline's 14 and Mimic's complete inability to do anything about it without help. So Femme really sits off in its own little world, doing its own thing. Just like with the AI breakers, Worm and Crypsis, but we're not talking about those. This next segment is called Enigma, and it's going to focus on not the mechanism-related part of the cards, but we're going to focus on the flavor part of the cards, which is often brought to being in its flavor text and sometimes right along there with its art. Since we're in, on the theme of ice here, let's take a look at Corroder again. It has flavor text, a quote, from someone named Guru, although his name is spelled G, or her name, their name, is spelled G-0-0-R-U, very leet speak. And he says, if at first you don't succeed, boost its strength and try again. Now, the reason I'm highlighting this is not because of its really uh, pithy comment, but because it's actually one of three cards in the core set that has a quote from Guru along with Sneak Door Beta, where Guru says the code isn't important. It's where the code takes you that is important. And Hadrian's Wall, which is ice, 
He says he had a bit of an ego, old Hadrian. His constructs live up to it, though. I just want to mention Guru because you see his name on three different pieces of three different cards, and you think, well, here's someone important in the Netrunner universe. And we will see him on flavor text in the future. But Guru never shows up in the game. I'm sorry, spoiler alert. Guru never shows up in the game. Uh, Yog.0, another Anarch icebreaker. That name, Yog, is, according to Anchor, the Android Netrunner Comprehensive Unofficial Rules wiki, the card name is a reference to the H.P. Lovecraft deity Yog sothoth the opener of ways. And so, it's a picture of a key. And it's a code gate breaker, a decoder. The flavor text says, The Yog.0 database is a crowdsourced compilation of sniffed, spoofed, and logged passkeys. If the key to the gate is in the database, you're in. If it's not, change the gate. So that's kind of a reference to the fact that Anarch can just get in, and it's free. And if not, maybe you need to apply some pressure to the code gate that you're facing. But it's interesting, the working in, the, of course, there's a lot of Lovecraftian lore in other Fantasy Flight games. This is just a, a little taste of it here in Netrunner. One way you might be able to change the gate so that Yogg can do its job is by employing Ice Carver. Ice Carver just reduces the strength of all ice by one. Now here, the flavor text is quite a bit longer, but I think it makes it, just kind of gives them an interesting flavor to sort of what's going on behind the scenes in the, the Netrunner universe. In the public consciousness, there's a hard line between Corp and Runner. In the real world, things are a little more porous. The corps need the best hackers to run their networks. And some of the best hackers are ex-runners who like the idea of a regular paycheck. But sometimes things run the other way, and someone on the inside makes something like this. So, that makes me wonder whether, is Guru an ex-runner? Who's working for the corp? Oh, maybe, maybe. But actually, it suggests that a some hacker from inside a corp made this resource, Ice Carver, to make ice more porous for runners to be able to get in. It's kind of an interesting behind-the-scenes thing. When you're playing the game, it doesn't mean anything. It's just another way that Netrunner sort of immerses you in its world. To debut another new segment here, experiential data. We're going to be looking back at old tournaments, old games that were played, and highlight them. Uh, this time around, what I'm going to focus on is the Gen Con Icebreaker Tournament. This is from August 18th of 2012. So Netrunner was released at Gen Con just a couple of days earlier, and then on the Sunday they had an icebreaker tournament. 56 players played. The winner was David Kempe. His winning decks were Kate and Jinteki. And the second place finisher, Philip Morton, 
played Hasbioroid and Kate. And they both put up reports, but it was the, the more full report was from Philip Morton, the second place finisher. So I'm going to just run through his report here, but I'll let you know if you would like to watch the video of these matches, they are on YouTube. They'll be listed in the show notes. So first of all, oh, and, and the reason, why would I include this at all? Well, if you want to play with a, with, with a, a decent deck, admittedly, this is early on, and there's going to be some deck r- building rules that aren't as followed as adhered to as closely. But I mean, this did win a tournament with 56 people in it, so it can't be all bad. That's my theory anyway. Feel free to correct me on that theory. Uh, the HB deck has only 45 cards in it and only uses 11 of its influence. The agendas are three accelerated beta test, three priority requisition, three private security force. There are five assets, three Adonis campaign and two pad campaign. The operations are two archive memories, three hedge fund, and three precognition pulled in from Genteki. There are two corporate troubleshooters. And as for the ice, it totals 21. Nine barriers in the form of two Heimdall, two ice wall from Wayland, three wall of static, and two wall of thorns pulled in from Genteki. There are six code gates, three Enigma, three Victor, and six sentries, three Ichi, three Roto turret. As for the runner deck, the Kate deck, again 45 cards, only 13 influence, still not using the full influence here. About half the deck is events, three diesel, three infiltration, three modded, three special order, pulled from criminal, three sure gamble, three the maker's eye, three tinkering. For hardware, we have eight, three Akamatsu Memchip, three cyber feeder, pulled from Anarch, and two from of the toolbox. Six resources, three Sacrificial Construct, three Armitage Code Busting, two copies of Magnum Opus, and eight Icebreakers, two Battering Ram, two Gordian Blade, two Ninja, pulling the killer in from Criminal, and two Crypsis. Philip's first comment is, I should have run a third Archive Memories, but I put two into the first deck I tried building and didn't pull them out before leaving the hotel. I have no idea why I was running three Sacrificial Construct. I guess I was really scared of program trashing, or maybe I just didn't look at that pile while I was trimming. I don't think I played Tinkering all tournament, just didn't run into a situation situation where it would save me money. I think I might have had one situation where I could use it to hit a fort I didn't have a breaker for, but I think I drew the needed breaker before I used the Tinkering. At least one of my runner games, Crypsis, acts as my primary breaker for a chunk of the game. Corporate Troubleshooter does his job and wins me a corp game at some point letting me pump an ice just above the runner's ability to break the fort. First round, uh, 1-1, split. They won the corp, things maybe against criminals, but as runner I ran into a June bug before I could steal anything, so I lost the match. Had two counters at the start of the run, but Matrix Analyzer put it to three. The guy even asked if I was sure I didn't want to jack out, and I was thinking it could be an ambush, but I was thinking Ghost Branch for some reason and wasn't too worried about tags. In retrospect, the fact that he did advance it with a matrix analyzer when I was about to steal it should have been a tip-off. I tried to take this lesson, and I don't think I got flatlined for the rest of the tournament, although it might have made me run a little too conservatively a couple of times. It was a second-round sweep, he said. Sneak an accelerated beta test through unprotected by pretending it's another pad or Adonis campaign 
after I see he didn't run on my first unprotected pad campaign. In the third round, another sweep. He said, second or third round is corp. I think it's over when I score my third agenda, show my hand, and then realize I had six points, not seven. Whoops. It didn't really hurt me because my forts were pretty beefy and I score the last agenda out of my hand without problems. Fourth round, a split. He says, I, I start using the extra click counters to keep track of my opponent's actions. This works well. He screws up the math on bits required to break the visible ice and can't get through a couple of times. He thinks maybe he was tired. I think this was fourth round, and I think he won as runner anyway, but I won the match. Feel good about being 3-1 three three and one with two game losses, but I thought the cut was to top eight. Still pleasantly surprised when I make top eight and win a playmat. Thought they were reading the top eight starting from the top, so when they said the cut was to top four and my name had been red sixth, I assumed I'm out. Start packing up. Fortunately, I stopped to check the rankings on my way out and find out I'm actually third. One point higher strength of schedule than all the other 18 prestige people. Top four, a split. Say so I lose as Corp versus Anarchs. He trashes one unprotected Adonis campaign after I res it. So I archive memories to get it back and then try to sneak accelerated beta test unprotected again, hoping he'll assume it's the Adonis, but he runs to trash it immediately this time. Dope. He runs into a roto turret on R&D and I get to trash my only program of the day. The accelerated beta test I do get off mills an agenda. Didn't have a chance to precog it. Data sucker with grimoire lets Parasite blow up my wall of thorns a turn earlier than I was counting on. I lose when Parasite trashes the one roto turret on my hand, and my hand was three priority requisition, one private security force, but he only needed three points. Oh, so I guess that that must have been part of his deck list for HB. I figure I'm going to lose the match, since I only got two points first game, but I got ridiculously lucky. Next game, NBN, he only draws one ice, and it's a data raven. He puts it on R&D, I leave R&D alone for a while, but I get two agendas from his unprotected hand and win when I accept the Data Raven tag slash token and find an agenda on top. He only scored one breaking news beforehand, so I win the match. It's based on points. I haven't been up on the tournament scene a bunch, but I feel like that's not necessarily how it's done now. Maybe somebody can correct me on that. And then the top two. Uh, again, the video for this is available on YouTube if you want to watch it. So he says, I'll leave up what I wrote up from memory, although it's probably inaccurate, he says. Lose to Jinteki after a long game. I'm worried about ambushes and hit one snare, but managed to avoid any others, I think. I see Wall of Thorns from his hand and or deck half a dozen times. I can't manage the bits to get through his big data fort fast enough. Second game as Corp, I feel good about my ice, but Maker's Eye eats my lunch. Aesop's Pawn Shop works well for him, as do the Rabbit Holes, both of which I cut from my Shaper deck. The Bank Job, Leave One Bit, Sell to Aesop's Trick is one to remember. So that's the report, our experiential data from the first official tournament for Android Netrunner back in the uh, summer of 2012. This episode of 2.1 is brought to you by Gentechie. Sure, we're gene techie, 
But be honest, do you really want some emotionless robot with a mind-ripped brain wandering around your house, taking care of your kids? Of course not. That's why choosy families choose the leader in clone-based, perfectly safe, no-need-to-worry domestic servitude. Jinteki, when you need the human touch. All right, here we are at Lemuria Codecracker again, and we're digging into the corpse side of the adjustments made by the Reboot Project. Of the 61 corp cards in the core set, 38 receive an adjustment of some kind. Most of them were buffs. 31 of those were buffs, only seven nerfs. Uh, Haas Bioroid received nine adjustments. Jinteki, 11. That's all but two of their cards. NBN and Whalen both seven, and also three of the neutrals. Because there are so many cards, I'm just going to take half of that pool this time. We're just going to do HB and Jinteki. Now, Jinteki cards received no buffs. I mean, sorry, no nerfs. The only nerfs came to Haas Bioroid, three of them. First to the Identity Engineering the Future, which gives you a credit the first time you install every turn. The influence is reduced from 15 to 12. For accelerated beta test, the agenda that gets you a free get you free ice after you score it, you look at two cards instead of three. And for biotic labor, the powerhouse that gives you an extra click to spend on your corp turn, its influence is raised from four all the way up to five. Worth noting that, as printed in the core set, there are no five influence cards. Something that people remarked on at the time. Uh, in fact, the first five influence card didn't come until the first deluxe expansion. But again, with the advantage of hindsight, uh, the reboot project can look and see, you know what, this one needs that extra pip of influence. What kind of buffs are we looking at? Let's just stick with Haas Bioroid. Aggressive Secretary, which is an advanceable ambush asset to destroy programs, has its cost, trash cost, raised from 0 to 2. Heimdall 1.0, the barrier that gives brain damage, has the res cost lowered from 8 to 6. Victor 1.0, a code gate that gives brain damage, the strength is raised from 3 to 4. And Roto Turret, the sentry that will destroy programs, has its strength raised from 0 to 1. Corporate Troubleshooter, an upgrade that increases the strength of ice, has its trash cost raised from 2 to 3. And Experiential Data, an upgrade to increase the strength of ice, has its strength gain increased from 1 to 2. As for Jinteki, again, all but two of their cards received some kind of buff. The Identity, Personal Evolution, which gives a net damage on an agenda that's scored or stolen, has the influence raised by 2 to 17. Project Junebug, an advanceable ambush asset that gives net damage, has its trash cost increased from 0 to 2. Zaibatsu Loyalty, an asset to prevent cards from being exposed, has its trash cost increased from 4 to 7. Neural EMP, 
an operation that does net damage, has its play cost reduced from 2 to 1. Precognition, an operation that lets you rearrange the top of R&D, lets you do 7 cards instead of just 5. Cell Portal, an infamous code gate that makes the run restart, has its res cost lowered from 5 to 3. Chum, a code gate that makes the next ice stronger, makes it stronger by 4 instead of just 2. Datamine, a trap that does net damage. That damage is increased from 1 to 2. Neural Katana, a sentry that does net damage, has its res cost lowered from 4 to 2. Wall of Thorns, a barrier that does net damage, has its res cost lowered from 8 to 6. Akitaro Watanabe, an upgrade that reduces the res cost of ice, reduces, uh, his res cost is reduced from 1 to 0. And so we'll go right into the matrix analyzer. I'll start with my comments and analysis. First of all, the fact that there are no Jinteki nerfs and 11 of 13 Jinteki cars received buffs telegraphs pretty clearly that Jinteki is on the weak side for this core set. It's also one of the, I think, harder uh, corps to play. I see comments, I'm going back and reading through old Board Game Geek threads, and I keep seeing comments from people saying, well, is Shaper Jinteki, the recommended matchup, actually good? Because I keep losing as Jinteki. Well, part of that because Jinteki hard to play, and part of it, uh, based on the big boy and the Re reboot project's analysis here, is that the cards are just not strong enough, basically. They're trying to be a little more conservative. We're a little too conservative. Uh, interestingly, that Zaibatsu loyalty trash cost from four to seven, seven is enormous, so nobody's going to trash that. But at the same time, I can't really see myself playing it because it prevents you from exposing a card. And honestly, that's something that was seen to be really important. And I guess maybe when you're first starting is really important, right? Because you don't know what's going on. Oh, here's a card that lets me know what the corp can, is actually doing, lets me see it. But it doesn't take long before, I mean, I don't think anybody, once they get just a little bit of experience, really spends time on, spends money on expose effects and leaves those in their deck at all. So even at a trash cost of seven, I doubt I would play that. Precognition gets a lot stronger. Cell Portal is the interesting one to me. Cell Portal, there's always the dream that you're going to run somebody in an infinite loop. And then you realize, oh, wait, the, the runner can jack out at any point. So the runner can just put you in an infinite loop long enough to drain you of your credits by reducing the res cost from five to three well, at least the corp can play that game quite a bit longer. I mean, that's almost half the cost, which is a little more than half. So that makes any cell portal shenanigans the corp wants to try a little more plausible. I also note that both of the big barriers, Wall of Thorns and Heimdall, Heimdall from Haas Bioroid, which are printed with a res cost of eight, have had that res cost lowered to six, which feels a lot better. It makes, seems to make them more viable. Eight is just so much to spend to res this barrier. It's just a wall. 
I mean, it's, it's again, barriers are the easiest things for the runner to break. Corroder is the most efficient of all the icebreakers, not just of all the fractors, but it's the cheapest of all the icebreakers to break things. So while I'm here in the matrix analyzer segment, I'm going to go ahead and share, we're, we're going to flash back to last week's episode about the runners because uh, the big boy, Abram, he shared with me his thoughts and explanations for why the cards that got nerfed of the runner cards did. So I'm just going to read out his comments. Noise, which as a reminder, had his influence drop from 15 to 10. Here's the comment. Noise with clone chip is far too powerful and difficult to interact with. Since he essentially has nine influence locked on ESOPs and cash, this change rules out that card for him. So you see, we're pulling together cards that are pretty far into the future. ESOPs Pawn Shop, a core set card. Clone Ship comes in the first deluxe expansion cash. Right offhand, I'm not sure. I think maybe it comes in the second deluxe expansion, the one for criminals. So by noise pulling all of those together, this, this keeps that from being too strong. There's a specific target for that combo of cards. Parasite, the cost gone from two to three. Parasite is an essential and healthy card for the game, but its economic value was a little too high. This change has a bigger impact than just one credit, because Parasite decks generally install multiple copies each game, or the same copy over and over. The one strength increase on Yogg.0. Here's the comment. Like Parasite, Yogg.0 is an essential and healthy part of the meta, but it's just a little too fast. This change also makes losing your Yogg to a Destroyer, or Archangel, more damaging. Of course, Archangel a card coming in a later release. Account Siphon, increasing in cost from 0 to 2. Siphon is Criminal's signature economic pressure card, and this main use case should remain intact. A change to two cost has two main effects, making it harder to land the first siphon early in the game, and making failing a blind siphon more painful. This means that siphon retains most of its power, but the corp has more options for counterplay. Uh, the biggest write-up is about Desperado losing its memory unit, which is nice, because that's the thing that I was uh, wondering about the most last week. Desperado is a cornerstone of the criminal faction, as is the rig of Datasucker, Mimic, and Yogg. When it is healthy, this setup relies on using tempo to keep the corp on its back foot so they cannot arrange their ice in a way that thwarts the fixed breakers. When Desperado provides MU, this gives room for two data suckers, making fighting off Mimic and Yogg nearly impossible. By taking away Desperado's MU, the runner is now either forced to forego the two-sucker setup or slot and find an additional MU card to use it. With only one data sucker, a single four-strength sentry or code gate can prevent the runner from farming data sucker counters on archives. With two, this is insufficient. Right, so that's a that's kind of a high level, and this goes to show that I don't I got like, oh wow, that's a really cool idea. Because uh, you know, pull in all of those Anarch cards into criminal, and we're reducing this 
effectiveness of, De of Desperado just for that Anarch suite of combo cards. So, nice explanation there. Appreciate that. Uh, two more. We have the Shaper cards. Kate losing her link. Kate face checks with Data Sucker a lot, and her link made it hard to fight her off with cheap tracers. This was unnecessary bonus power. And Aesop's, Aesop's Pawn Shop, which increases in cost from 1 to 2. Pawn Shop is a fun economy engine, but it was just a little too much positive tempo in the first few turns after it comes down. This change slows it down somewhat. Again, with so many of these things, a change of cost of just one, right? Parasite increasing in cost by one, Yogg by one, Aesop by one, but it can have a notable and uh, significant impact. Thanks again to the big boy for your comments. I'd be happy to take any comments from anybody else. I'll provide the contact information in just a minute. Our final segment is Research Station. Well, it's our next to last segment, but you know what I mean. Research Station is we look for resources available uh, outside of the game to be used. And this time we're going to focus on the Discord. Uh, Discord, I'm sure you know, is a sort of a social media gathering place and bulletin board and messaging system, particularly focused on games. There is a Discord for Android Netrunner and its extension, Null Signal Games, called Green Level Clearance. That's got a lot of great resources in it. But the particular one that you're going to want for the Reboot project is the Reboot Server. So I'm going to provide a link to that in the show notes. But there is where you can go to ask questions directly to the big boy, get his input on you know, why certain things were changed, what his thinking is behind certain decisions. You can get some four glimpses into the future about changes that are coming down the line, about new releases. There is where is the best place to go if you're looking for a game. You've gone to retechie.fun and you've not seen any games going on. You're like, well, how am I supposed to play a game? Go to the Discord. That's where the games are going to be found. So go into the Discord, find the games. You see any comments about game nights, see the leagues that are running there. Pre-constructed, constructed, LCG style, my own 2.1 league. I want to include, encourage anybody who wants to jump in at the ground floor to join me in the 2.1 channel on the Reboot Discord to, you know, play the game from the core set and very slowly adding in packs as we go. So there's a lot going on, a lot to see. It's a great resource. It's a very important resource for the Reboot Project there at the Discord. The AstroScript pilot program is going to focus on what the rules have to say about Gabe and Jinteki. That'll be after the closing credits here. Our music is provided by Alexi Action. The website for the podcast is netrunner2.1.com. That's the numeral two, the numeral one, and you have to spell out point. And all that's going to do is loop you right to the Reboot Project homepage. So that's all that's there for. You can contact me on Discord or BoardGameGeek. My username is Auberman, A-W-E-B-E-R-M-A-N. And the email address for the podcast is anreboot2.1. Here, numeral two, numeral one. And it is a period, 
at gmail.com. All that stuff's in the show notes. Thanks for listening. See you next week. Gabriel Santiago, consummate professional. Gabriel was hungry. Nothing new. Grew up hungry. Grew up lean. Grew up mean on the streets of New Angeles. You don't get much schooling on the streets, but you do get an education. Gabriel grew up speaking three languages and cursing in three more. He learned how to spot a cop or a spy drone, how to palm a pad from a wristy's coat pocket, how to crack the case and burn out the auto-locator without scragging the valuable electronics inside. Being hungry gave him an edge, had to want it more, had to need it, had to be willing to do what it took to get ahead. So yeah, Gabriel was hungry. He liked it that way, kept himself hungry. Cracking pads turned into cracking code, turned into cracking networks. Could have gone straight. Worked for HB or one of the small software startups that bloom and die like mushrooms on a corpse all through New Angeles, gotten fat, complacent, lost the edge. Better this way, Gabriel said, hanging upside down outside the 124th floor of the Hu Jintao Arcology. A green light blinked on the small black box affixed to the window by his head, claiming the alarm was successfully disabled. Gabriel ignored it. It was linked to his cortical implant, and he'd know if it needed his attention. He focused on carefully removing the cut glass from the window before him. Couldn't drop it. Couldn't let the wind snatch it away. He used his good hand, his flesh-and-blood hand, for the operation. Deftly, he tucked the circle of glass about the size of his palm into the front pocket on his vest. Then the laser probe had to be placed just so, with the beam striking the optical port on the Serrari man's desk inside. And then he was in the network. He pulled a cable from the laser probe and socketed it into his wrist, his bad wrist, his metal wrist. An optical connection established, his implant came to life, flooding his mind with data. His sense of his body fell away, He wasn't hanging upside down a mile above the street with the wind tearing at his clothes anymore. He was in a river of data, a bodiless phantasm, a ghost in the machine. But he was still hungry. Jinteki, when you need the human touch. The traditionally conservative Jinteki Corporation is now being led by an aggressive new chairman of the board, Chairman Hiro, through a series of upheavals and transitions. Alongside rapid developments in the field of cloning and biotechnology in the last decade, the corporation has relocated its headquarters from Tokyo, Japan, to New Angeles. Acquired or built laboratories on Mars, and shifted its recruitment policies to diversify its research and sales forces. Branch offices have also been granted more autonomy, 
and localized marketing has increased sales of consumer model clones, though most clone sales are still business-to-business. This upheaval mirrors unrest in society at large in the past decades, and the cause is the same. Androids. Jinteki owns the patent on the process that creates human-like clones, biological androids, tailor-made by the gene-geneers of Jinteki. As this controversial technology becomes cheaper and more robust, more and more humans find themselves replaced in the workforce by cheaper android labor. While some Jinteki Corporation products, such as the vacuum-tolerant turtleback clones, sometimes seen in Heinlein or on the beanstalk, bear only a faint resemblance to human beings, others are virtually indistinguishable, marked only by barcode tattoos on the backs of their necks. Jinteki markets its clones as more personable and person-like than the robotic bioroids built by their chief competitor. Clones are inherently adaptable and intuitive, just like a real person, and are able to establish empathy with real humans more easily than other androids. They excel in service industry positions, although heavy labor and industrial process clones are also readily available. Rumors exist of clone projects that explore the potential of human psionic ability, but such claims are dismissed by serious scientists. Jinteki has performed extensive research on the human brain and mind-machine interface technologies, but this is because so-called brain-taping technology is essential to their production process. The new, sleeker, more modern Jinteki prides itself on adaptability, aesthetics, and a connection to the natural world. Jinteki is proud of its heritage as a Japanese corporation and embraces a traditional aesthetic as part of its corporate identity. In addition to clones, Jinteki and its subsidiaries specialize in biotechnology, cloned organs, pharmacology, agriculture, and medical equipment. <laughs> ¶¶